catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. All right, it's another film study. Now we get to look ahead. It's Know Your Foe, Week 14, the Buffalo Bills. Ken McCusick, how are you doing? 
Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing well. This is a big game with a lot riding on it that I don't think a lot of Raven fans realize that because it didn't seem that way a few weeks ago. No, it, it didn't. But uh, if the Bills go on to win the division and they, and they beat the Ravens here, they certainly have a possibility at the number one seed in the conference. And the Ravens, this is an important game for them uh, to, to take care of business. Uh, they're, they're not massively favored and, uh, and win at Buffalo. Yeah, and, and exactly. And for the Bills, it's a huge game because of that. If they're going to win the division, they kind of got to win this game. And they, if they win this game, they, they pretty much have that number one seed over us. They, they have they are set up yeah. to, to win the one seed. Yeah. Right, right. So it's a, it's a huge game, which is why it's exciting. And it seems like every week is one of these huge tests for the Ravens. This is the next one. So let's welcome our guests on the show. Andrew, how are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad, guys. Thanks for having me in. Pleasure having yeah. you on, uh, Drew. I just joined you on your uh, your similar Know Your Foe episode you did for the Bills fan. It was a real pleasure. Uh, glad to have you on. We're, we we have an, obviously a, an analytic heavy audience uh, here uh, that that I think listens to our podcast. We definitely want to hear your analysis of the Bills players uh, position by position as we go through this. Uh, we, we talked a little bit on the, on the, on the pregame about what's going on. I kind of want to let you drive the action here, but let's just start with a very general question. What changes have there been in the Buffalo Bills? How are they not the Bills you expected at the beginning of the season? I think it's a foreign concept to a lot of Bills fans. Like to hear you guys talking about the Bills potentially being in the mix for the one seed in the AFC. It's a concept that at 34 years old is still completely foreign to me. I was too young to be able to appreciate it the last go-round. Um, it's it, essentially, for the Bills fans and just the changes we've seen in this team, there's a sense of composure that I don't think they've ever had before. There's, And I, I believe a lot of that, we owe that to our new coach, Sean McDermott. He's really found a way to engage the players. And I think he's he's doing this job of more with less in terms of overall talent on this roster. And the trickle-down effect is that they're a very mentally tough team. And they've kind of morphed from a team that used to kind of be synonymous with failure to a team that doesn't beat itself and forces its opponents to really execute at a high level if they want to win. All right. Well, fair enough. And, you know, we spoke to changes in that the, the Bills at the beginning of this year, what's the thing that surprised you most in terms of a player who stepped up or, or a, a unit that's done particularly well or performed above expectation? Well, honestly, if you want to talk about changes, I think the biggest thing that you have to talk about is quarterback Josh Allen. I mean, it, it just in regards to his poise, his approach to the game of NFL football, his understanding of the mechanics of what it takes to be a successful pocket passer. You, know, you look back at 2018. In 2018, you take a look at his passing charts. He had he was below average in almost every area of the field when you want to talk about completion percentage to different spots, specifically between zero and 20 yards. He was just he had no touch on his passes. He really struggled to read a front seven and linebackers, and the, the way he would try to throw into that was almost overly cautious. And because of it, he was you know, a lot of errant throws. You come into this season, and then you see where he's progressed to this point. We just came off of a win over Dallas, where in that same part of the field, the 0 to 20 yards, where he was below average across the board in 2018, 
On 18 passing attempts, he completed 15 of them with just two incompletions and a touchdown. I mean, it's you can't ask for more growth than that. And with that, he's sort of taken command of the offense. And I think the players have realized this, and now we're beginning to rally around him in that. And it's really helped our offense find it, it kind of hit its stride. All right. Now, Alan, uh, one of the things that's a, a big highlight or marquee component of this game is that Allen is a running quarterback, just like Lamar Jackson. And he's got 430 yards on 93 carries this year. So he definitely does, you know, averaging almost eight carries a game. Most importantly, he's got eight touchdowns. Lamar has only seven, just for Ravens fans out there. And one of the big stats, so Lamar is very elusive and is obviously at much higher yards per carry, particularly when the fact when the meals are factored out. But Josh Allen has averaged about 3.6 yards per carry after contact. You get different numbers, different sources for that. But let's take that as a true number. That's 3.6 out of 4.6 per carry that are after contact. Well, one of the things you, you see from Josh Allen is I think the beginning of this season, they really put an onus on him not to run unless he had to. I don't want to say that they tried to phase out the running aspect of his game, but as we talked about on our show, when you look at designed quarterback runs, Lamar Jackson far and away is leading the NFL in designed carries for the quarterback. Josh Allen's numbers are far below that. I think he's down somewhere around 230, uh, 240 in that range. And a lot of that is because they spent the early portion of the season, I don't want to say pigeonholing him, but forcing him to play from the pocket. You know, They didn't want to see him escaping with his legs as often and just trying to manufacture yardage that way. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they wanted him. They, they knew that for this offense as a whole to be successful, he absolutely had to improve as a passer first. And then you could massage in the running aspects of his game after he had a clear understanding of how to, how to, how to navigate an offense from the pocket. Okay. So with that said, you want to talk about the yards after contact. One of the big things about Josh Allen, he's a big look at him. He's you, when you size wise compare him to a Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson is a finesse runner. He runs with speed and elusiveness. That's not Josh Allen's game. Josh Allen's game is, I'm faster than you give me credit for in the open field. You're probably going to take a bad angle on me in the tackle attempt, and I can probably crush you off. So he does find a way to manufacture a lot, especially when you take into account that when he vacates the pocket now and he starts to run, he's usually waiting until kind of the linebackers have gone off and drifted off into various zone coverages. So it's usually a defensive back somewhere that's trying to stop him, which he has a clear size advantage over. Gotcha. Well, I, I, I understand that. And going back to a point you made earlier, though, the 230 yards of designed run, what's the nature of those runs? Because Lamar, I mean, obviously has a huge read option stable of plays that they have built in. I'm really surprised that you know a player that's got 400 yards, basically a rushing, has 230 of that designed as opposed to scrambles. Well, and that's uh, essentially what what ends up happening on designed runs. When they want to get Josh Allen, usually what it'll be is it'll be a bootleg pass, and then they allow him to roll off because we are still a run-heavy offense. So they'll usually call a bootleg, and then it's on him to decide whether he wants to uncork the pass or if the protection has shifted so dramatically to the play fake that he can just make his way up the sideline, he'll take off. And that's, you know, I think that's where you see a lot of that yardage coming from. The other thing they like to do is, you, know, you see it with Lamar Jackson out of the pistol, Josh Allen out of the shotgun. 
There will be times they ran it a couple times in this last game against Dallas where you saw them out of the shotgun fake to the running back and they leave it up to Allen as to whether or not he wants to pull the ball out and try to run with it once somebody overcommits to the running back or if he does just want to hand it off to the running back and let them try to make the play. Okay, so they're doing some of that read option. Let's go back to the bootleg for a second. Do they bootleg with play action from under center? So that it's a zone block left naked boot right kind of play where you've got a, a, a one or two back set that's all faking the play to the left side. And he's usually as a right handed quarterback, you expect it to typically go to the right side where he's then getting an option because that's they did that for years with Flacco. Uh, I've always theorized that less mobile quarters quarterbacks and, and whether or not, you know, we like. We like and respect Josh Allen as a runner, but he's still a less mobile quarterback than, say, Jackson. And I'm just making the comparison on that general level. Uh, oh, that a less, no, absolutely. A less, yeah, a less mobile quarterback actually has a better chance to fool the edge defender in play action. Well, and that's one of the things is they what you'll see a lot of times, they, they don't so much go with the two-back set. It's something that's actually been slowly phased out of our offensive attack over the course of the season. And I think when you do see it, it's very much predicated on personnel. You're talking about pretty much any time you see a fullback on the field, it's being used in conjunction with Frank Gore and our blocking tight end Lee Smith. Pretty much all of their snap counts are tied together. The three of them are just a trio that they don't break them up very often. But they've also seen a reduced role as the season has gone on. I think early on in the season, they like to defer to that kind of a look because they Sean McDermott has a love affair with veteran talent. He doesn't immediately like to throw rookies into the fire. So with Devin Singletary, they really slowly massaged him into our attack. But then like when you look at Patrick DeMarco's snaps, early on in the season, he was seeing anywhere between 20 and 30 percent of our snaps and then it came down over you know after week two into the high teens since that point he hasn't seen more than 10 snaps on offense over the course of the last month they've essentially phased the fullback out of our offense and have switched to an 11 personnel look more often than not so if you're running a play though where you're talking about this bootleg play action it's usually coming from a single back look, usually okay. with two wide receivers on the field and two tight ends. That's normally the way they'll construct it. And then from there, they'll usually put the more athletic tight ends like a Tyler Croft or a Dawson Knox on the side that he's rolling to so that he has at least one leak option on that side. Gotcha. All right. Uh, always good description to hear that. The play, how, how teams run play action always fascinates me in terms of the relative differences there uh let's talk about the offensive line a little bit and i'm noticing can you explain what's going on with the usage of cody ford it doesn't look like he's playing complete games like he's playing about half a game (laughs) and i'm I'm trying to understand that there's you and me both ken it's one of the these great mysteries of the everyone the quote here in buffalo is trust the process you know, that's the quote, and it's the thing Sean McDermott has said since he got here. And under that banner, he's done some rather unorthodox things over his tenure. And you have to just trust that he knows what he's doing. So in the offseason, we went out, we drafted uh, Cody Ford, who was he kind of projected to be a better guard at the NFL level than he would have been a tackle. But the powers that be here are deter- have determined he's going to be a tackle. And that's where they're trying to massage him in. But they also hedged their bets in free agency and went out and signed Ty Inseki, who's he's a veteran option. I think he was kind of overlooked, but he's 
if for an older guy, he's still got some tread left on the tire, and he's shown pretty well when he's gotten the opportunity to start. And they've done this dance throughout the course of the season where on certain drives, and I think it's based on what they were trying to accomplish, I think a lot of it was based on game flow, too, when you look at the scoreboard. They were giving Cody Ford early reps in games, and if things did start to go awry, you'd see them start giving whole, you know, all of a sudden Cody Ford's on the bench and you have a brand new right tackle come in for a series. You see that kind of thing with tight ends and wide receivers, not mm-hmm. so much offensive tackles. And so throughout the season, they kind of did this tit-for-tat thing with the two of them, and then Ty Insecki goes down with an ankle injury, and everyone here threw their hands up and says, okay, here we go, this project right tackle is going to get our quarterback killed. And instead, what you've seen is, I think this The project massage- is the rookie, or the project is the 34-year-old monolith? <laughs> the project is the rookie. You're, you have this rookie project who you say, we have games against Von Miller. We have Demarcus Lawrence on our schedule. We have some premier pass-rushing talent on the outside. And Cody Ford, I think, has learned a lot from watching Inseki play. And I think he's learned a lot from being slowly massaged in as a starter to the point that now he's being given the lion's share of the snaps because we don't have anybody else to take it. But he's doing very well, especially in one-on-one situations. Okay, so I want to go back to Nseki for a second because he's a player that interests me tremendously. Nseki is 34 years old now. He's bopped around the league a little bit, but he he didn't get his start until 2012 with L.A., then went to Washington. He didn't play again until 2015. That's only four years ago. He's 34 now. He's got in, in his total career, he's got less than 1,700 NFL snaps. That's a season and a half. Okay. Mm-hmm. And here's the shocking thing. If you look at PFF, he's played very well during that entire during that entire span. He's a monolithic man. It's not a question of length. I'm sure it's not. There may be questions about, about what he can do in terms of pass blocking, but there's nothing about the results here in terms of what's being reported grade-wise that, that I would look at and say, boy, that's a big problem. And now they've got a second-round draft pick. Obviously, they want to get in the game. But why did Inseki never get a chance, given how well he's played? It is kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. Because generally speaking, NFL coaches aren't in the habit of leaving talented players on the bench. Good coaches. Don't do that. I think for Ty Inseki, it's that first, I mean, he came from the arena, arena league football, so he kind of had to overcome this idea that he is just some guy, quote unquote. He's got the size. I think there was issues with footwork early on in his career, but he brushed them up over the years. He's got, by all, by all accounts, when he had to come in for the Buffalo Bills, especially in games where you would see early on in the season, you know, the Jets game, you know, they were getting pressure, they were getting pressure, so they roll in Seki out there for a handful of series, and he was always a stabilizing factor in the line. I can't, I can't tell you exactly why they never gave him just the chance to be the de facto starter, other than they very much believe Cody Ford could be the guy and that he wouldn't learn if he didn't get some reps. It's, it, it genuinely is one of the great mysteries of NFL head coaching. And I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's mind boggling to me. Well, it's, it's, it's a player there who is, he's too valuable to be sitting on the bench for Buffalo because there's other teams that would give a testicle for Ty and Secchi. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you could trade him, you could get some, some real value, whether it's a, a draft capital or a player. So it's just, it's surprising that that would happen, but, uh, but it is what it is. The Ravens, I'm sure, would love to have a third tackle at this point who could actually play the position. 
and uh, I'm just looking at him and, and being jealous over the fact that you guys got <laughs> you guys got three, and and the and the 49ers are another team that seems to have three, and uh, you know that's just a bummer. Okay. Anyway, uh, take us through the rest of the offensive line. I didn't mean to hold you up on that. Oh no, no worries. I mean, he really is an interesting character, and he's somebody that I'm kind of proud. Of. I pat myself on the back because I pegged him as a free agent at the Bills. I was like, you, it's a no brainer to go get this guy in free agency. Now this is before the draft, before I knew we were taking a right tackle, but it just made too much sense. And I figured he'd come at a reasonable deal, and he did. I mean, it was it just seemed like a match made in heaven, and it's just disappointing to me that he didn't get more run out of that contract across the rest of the offensive line in 2018, the bills had one of the cheapest offensive lines in football. I think at why I think I saw the numbers. Our whole line collectively was making $12 million, which is below league average for a starting left tackle. So, So with that said, we got about the performance you would expect from a line that costs 12 million. So this year, when we went into free agency, they really put an onus on building up the line. And you saw first they went big with their center, Mitch Morse. They spent $10 million a year on him. Then they went and they fleshed out. They brought in other guys, John Feliciano and Spencer Long being two of them, who really, and I mean really, have kind of transformed what this line is and what it's capable of being. When you look at the line from left to right, you've got Deion Dawkins on the left side who's having a rebound from last season. He's having a career year at left tackle. Uh, he's he's not the most he's not the most fluid guy in space. One on one matchups, some some of your faster speed rushers are going to give him trouble. But he anchors well. He does well. He, he's reliable in the run game. You go next to him, and you're talking about Quentin Spain. Quentin Spain was with Tennessee and graded out really well in pass protection. And he's you want to talk about a monolithic human being. He's one of the biggest, heaviest guys in the NFL to play interior guard. He's shown really well, and he's kind of cleaned up some of his pass protection stuff. So, or I mean, his run, his run blocking. So he's been an asset to us, but he's only here on a one-year deal, and I firmly believe he'll play. He's playing himself into a much bigger contract for next year. But his presence has allowed Dawkins to go back to being the player he was when he had Richie Incognito next to him. You factor in veteran Mitch Morse doing what he's always done, which is just be slightly above average against the run, very good in pass protection. His pass protection, you're not going to get a whole lot up the middle on Mitch Morse. And so with that, we've solidified the entire left side of the line. On the right side, you know, we just got done talking about Cody Ford and Ty Inseki, but the guy in the middle, and I think the guy who really is the spark plug for this whole thing, is a guy nobody knows about named John Feliciano. Yeah, he was a backup on the Raiders for years, but because of their offensive line problems, he was const- he'd spot start four or five games at a time. He brings a viciousness to that group. He's nasty. He plays he plays offensive line the way Richie Incognito played offensive line, with bad intentions. He's a very good run blocker. You would almost want to call him a mauler in the run game. And the thing that I like, and he's gotten better in his pass protection enough that they trust him to hold down the starting job. And I think what makes him, him invaluable is that he can also slide over and play center. So they've built depth, and they've also increased the talent across that entire front. Very good. Very good. Okay, I didn't know anything about Feliciano before we just had this talk, but that's uh, that's interesting to hear about him. Uh, okay, 
wide receiver core. Uh, the Ravens know some of those guys. John Brown, obviously, coming over. And by the way, uh, we really appreciate the fact he's having a big year in terms of his comp pick not getting degraded when the when the Mosley comp pick is going to be degraded. We understand for the recent IR. Uh, but the, the wide receivers in general have had a good year for Buffalo. They really have, and I think that that speaks it's, – it, you know, people have called it the chicken and the egg argument. Is Josh Allen doing better just because he has better off, uh, better wide receiving talent? Or is he improving as a player and thus these players are having big years? But either way, they're working really well together. John Brown has been a godsend for this offense because when I, I think when you looked at John Brown early in, early in his career and even in his year with the Ravens, he was seen as kind of, I don't want to call him a one-trick pony, but he kind of was. He was your, he's going to run a deep cross, he's going to run a deep comeback or a curl, and he can run you a, a fly route. And those were, that's kind of how he was utilized throughout a lot of his career. What we're finding out is that he can run a pretty sizable route tree, and his hands are reliable. He's not the biggest, most physical receiver in the world, but he's smart, and he just seems to find ways to get open whenever we're playing against a zone coverage, which when you're talking about a young quarterback, he's kind of become the most reliable thing we have. And then next to him you have, and I think almost they, they work well in concert, is Cole Beasley. You get him from the Cowboys. He's kind of a Julian Edelman type route runner. I mean, I'm not going to say he's on that same you know, page in terms of overall talent, but what you get from him is a guy who, again, has a really good feel for how to beat zone coverage, how to sneak in behind linebackers, how to find soft spots, and he he runs his routes. He's kind of crafty in the sense that he, he's got a kind of a when he cuts, he cuts quickly, and so it's hard for anybody who's a linebacker to keep up with him. And that's given Josh Allen both a deep, uh, deeper target down the field, but also a kind of security blanket underneath where normally you know, you'd look at a tight end. You see what Mark Andrews is doing for Lamar Jackson this year. He's the guy that Lamar Jackson can look at between that zero to eight yards from the line of scrimmage and say, "My, I know that this guy is going to be able to beat a lot of coverages. Cole Beasley has become that for this offense. So the, the, the thing I look at at Brown and Beasley, I'm seeing two guys who have virtually the same catch rate, 68% for Beasley and 66% for Brown in terms of their targets this year. Brown is actually, this is impressive, out-targeting Beasley. Very unusual for you know a go-to slot receiver not to have more targets than your, than your deep threat. Okay. Well, I think that might I think that might just and again, I think that speaks to the fact that Josh Allen is a young quarterback and he's trying to become more of a passer. And in this, he's kind of figured out that there's a handful of guys in this offense that I can lean on. John Brown is number one with a bullet. He's the guy that if I'm in a pinch, if I, I, I'm in a must make a play situation, he's his eyes are always going to John Brown first. You know, and, and sometimes that gets us in trouble. You know, defensive coordinators aren't dumb. They key on that. They say, okay, on this play, it's third and eight. We're going to put a you – know, we were talking about Marcus Peters and his ability to kind of keep a wide receiver just close enough that he can make some dangerous plays. If you're a good coordinator with some talent like that at cornerback, we've seen where they've kind of used his reliance on Brown against us in the sense that he he, he knows he can trust Brown – but he, I think for a while he's been almost trying to force the ball to him, whereas you're finally starting to see over the last few weeks a more even distribution of passes. Okay, fair enough. Have there been a fair number of interceptions on balls that have gone to Brown that wouldn't show up in the stats I'm looking at? But 
Uh, I think early on in the season he had a couple, and I think it was one of those things that definitely got him in trouble. Um, they, they, he also, they, you, I don't know if you guys are even aware of this, but we had a receiver that we drafted in the second round, Zay Jones. And he and uh, Josh Allen and Zay Jones could just never get on the same page. But I think that there was an onus to try to get him involved. And what you saw early on in the year from Josh Allen was that when he tried to force the ball to guys like Brown or to Zay Jones, it resulted in a lot of interceptions. That's where a bulk of his came from. Now what you're seeing is with a more even distribution of things, it's harder for a defense to key on it, and you're seeing fewer interceptions. I don't know if those things go hand in hand, but I have to think that there's some correlation. Okay, weird thing with John Brown. Last year, when Lamar Jackson starts, he was targeted 30 times with only eight catches. And all receivers, except for Mark Andrews, really took a step back when the Ravens went to this complete rush-dominated offense with, with Jackson in the second half. The funny thing is they could really use John Brown this year with 2019 Lamar Jackson. That you know They haven't had Marquise Brown available the whole year. He's been a great deep threat, but they have a number two receiver uh, who could also maybe, maybe run – more of the route tree or maybe even focus more on the deep routes. Maybe John Brown would be that guy and Marquise Brown would be the guy who's running all over the field. Uh, you know, either way, 2019 Lamar Jackson could really benefit from having another receiver who is very dangerous uh, on, as a wide out, not just a tight end. Well, and it's funny because you talk about Lamar Jackson last year. I'm looking right now. I just pulled up a chart that I made last season. When I kind of I wanted to compare the completion percentage because I had this idea forming in my head that Lamar Jackson loves tight ends, not so good at throwing to wide receivers. So I went through and I charted his completion percentage to tight ends and wide receivers game over game since he started playing. And what you saw was that his completion percentage to wide receivers seems to be dependent on where they were in the game, what games they won and lost. I think his highest completion percentages to wide receivers seem to come in games where they were behind and defenses were maybe lagging back a little bit. And But his completion percentages to tight ends were off the charts. I mean, he, you could tell he had a, a rapport with that position group, which is, I think, what's making your offense now under Greg Roman kind of putting the final touches on this so dangerous because it was something he was already skilled at, and now you've made it a focal point of the offense. It's an interesting point. I think it should you should have a higher completion percentage to tight ends just because of the route tree involved. Uh, because of the play-action passes involved, certainly in Baltimore's offense, you'd, you'd have a higher percentage of completions to that group. Mm-hmm. It would surprise me if there are too many NFL teams where the wide receivers actually have as high a completion percentage because it's those it's the deeper routes that, that end up being completed 50% of the time, and that's not tight ends right running those. Well, but the interesting thing was when you looked at the production that went along with the completion percentage, the only two games that he threw more than 100 yards to wide receivers last year were both losses. And so you you look at the game flow and you say, okay, maybe that's a byproduct of the defense is playing a little bit more. uh, They're playing back a little bit. You know, hey, we're willing to let you throw in front of us as long as we can keep you from scoring. Whereas you see tight ends, when they had their biggest days, the margin of victory was the largest he had during those runs. So it just seemed like the production and the completion percentage, when you combine that together out of that tight end group, kind of laid the groundwork for what we're seeing now. I was thinking about this after we did our show the other night. All right. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Let's move on in this one and just talk about the running backs now for the Bills. And obviously, you know, they've been a run-heavy team. 
They have been a run-heavy team, but it's interesting to see how we got here. Uh, At the beginning of the season, Frank Gore was seeing a large portion of snaps. He was, uh, because again, we've got a head coach who... He does not believe in throwing young players to the Wolves. You know, we saw it in 2017 with Matt Milano, who was heads away. Now he's a, a very good inside linebacker for us. But he was heads above in talent to Ramon Humber, who's just an NFL journeyman. But early on in the season, he started Humber over him anyway because he trusts. He, he almost wants to make young guys earn their snaps sometimes even to the detriment of production. And that's what I think you saw early on in the season with Frank Gore, because you saw him go on a couple games where I think he was getting 60%. I'm I'm looking at his snap percentages now. And over the course of the beginning of the season, 60%, 40%, 50%. By week seven, he was down to 20%, 33%. And that's in lockstep with the kind of phasing out of our offense of the fullback and also our primary blocking tight end. Lee Smith, all of their, our run game was very heavily predicated on trying to just run off tackle and run up the middle of the field because Frank Gore doesn't have a lot of elusiveness to his game. I mean, let's he's 36 years old. He's two mm-hmm. years older than I am. And he's still out there playing football. I can't imagine that he's got a whole lot of pep in his step left in terms of elusive kind of running style. On the other hand, you've got this Devin Singletary, who you've watched him now week over week as he starts to get more acclimated to the NFL game. He's creating plays. You can see when he gets in the open field, his yards after contact are great. His contact balance is incredible. And and his feet and just the way he can cut inside of a hole make him very dangerous, especially when you're facing linebacking cores that sometimes don't tackle all that well or have a hard time... keeping up with a back that have his change of direction skills. And so I think that's kind of what's changed over the course of the last few weeks. I mean, when you look at our statistics and you look at how we fared game over game in terms of rushing early on in the season, I mean, we're still rushing in the hundreds per game, but a lot of that is a combination of running backs and quarterback doing the damage with their legs as a team though. Now the last three weeks, you see 168, 244 and 124 on the ground per those are just three individual games. A lot of that coincides with them almost completely phasing out the fullback and running out of an 11 personnel. Mm -hmm. They, They do a lot of single back stuff, whether it's from under center or out of the shotgun. And one of the points when we were talking about offensive line that I guess I should have brought up then, but it feeds into this concept. Quentin Spain and John Feliciano do two things really, really well that no one on our team could accomplish last year. They like to pull with the guards. And Quentin Spain, for as big of a man as he is, is really agile at getting out there on the edge and sealing off linebackers and cornerbacks. And behind that, a back as shifty as Devin Singletary can run really well out of a single back set behind that. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, obviously the Ravens had some trouble stopping the edge runs during the early part of the game against San Francisco. We talked about that on your show the other day do you anticipate that that's something buffalo will at least test in this game coming up oh 100 in fact i think a lot of their recent rushing success has been predicated on that you're getting getting their running backs to the edge which is why i think you're seeing more of singletary and you see gore's snap count being so heavily reduced is because they've realized this is something we can lean on because of the way our guards pull so well because we do have two pretty good blocking tight ends in Tyler Croft and Dawson Knox, who also bring a pass-catching aspect to their game. 
So whereas Lee Smith was kind of a one-trick pony, all he is is a blocker. These two guys can do a little bit of both, and they do it just well enough that when you can get them out on the edge along with a pulling guard, that's when you start to see these 15, these 25, and 30-yard gains rack up. Yeah, well, fair enough. I mean, obviously, the Ravens just faced a team that blocked very well on the edges, and and that is a certain a, a concern with that, particularly if with two heavy skill position players, which you wouldn't have in 11 personnel, but you mm-hmm. would have in either 12 or 21 potentially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, have uh, had trouble handling that. The, uh, the thing about Frank Gore, I'm noticing here, 20th in the league in carries with 146, despite some reduced workload. So he's still, that is a hell of a lot of carries for a guy his age, for a, for a <laughs> running back his age. But, but it's, it's a lot of carries for anyone, frankly, at, at, at this point. I mean, 20th in the league, uh, the guy right behind him is Lamar Jackson with 140. He's got 146 carries. So, uh, and a lot of the Lamars are kneels, fortunately. That's <laughs> not all him running the ball. But, uh. <laughs> But the, anyway, a very very high total for uh, for Gore there. Yeah, he's 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 kind of again they trust him, and so what you're seeing. I mean, there's a lot of teams out there that will run with three. They'll, they'll have three running backs in their rotation. Now I know I, I don't know if Baltimore per se has a third running back, although with the presence of Lamar Jackson, they really don't need one the way they utilize him in that offense between Gus Edwards, Mark Ingram and Lamar Jackson, they kind of get what they need from those three players. The problem for the bills is that we, our third running back is TJ Yeldon and he's inactive most weeks because he had uh, issues with ball security. And I think that that's a big, uh, one of the big onuses of this team is do not turn the ball over. We're not going to beat ourselves. So what you're seeing is they leave TJ Yeldon inactive and put, bring in Senoris Perry, who I think he has one or two career rushes to his credit. He's never really been utilized on offense. So essentially, we're trying to be a run-heavy offense, except we don't want to utilize our quarterback as a running back, and we only have two guys. <laughs> so with that, you're seeing Frank Gore get a bigger workload than I think he might on a lot of other teams. So it's, it's an interesting point. Why wouldn't they activate Yeldon in certain weeks? And you mentioned ball security and whatnot. One of my memories of, of Yeldon, I think this is the one, is is in the Notre, we went to the Notre Dame-Alabama National Championship game a few years ago. And Yeldon might have been a freshman at the time, but he ran all over Notre Dame in that game. And he had a pretty good run at Jacksonville in terms of total amount of time on the field anyway. Uh, and it comes to Buffalo in 2019. Was he a UFA or was he just he? I assume he was because he, he was. He was an unrestricted. He was an unrestricted free agent, and I was. I we. Oh, I think a lot of Bills fans were shocked because it, at the time you bring in a TJ Yeldon and you already have Lashawn McCoy and you have Frank Gore and you just you're, you now you're going to go out and then you draft a running back and you say to yourself, okay. What are we going to do with all of these guys? Because you can't have you can't have a bunch of and again I think that this feeds into it. You can't have a bunch of line uh, running backs active on game day who don't play special teams. Mm-hmm. You can't. So where you end up is is T.J. Yeldon does not play special teams. He never has throughout his career. I think to his own detriment. I think they realize he has value and that in the right situation he's a valuable backup to have just in case of emergency. You know, break glass in case of injury. But otherwise, he's. I really do think that they they don't feel he runs very well between the tackles the way that they'd like him to or the way that they like to utilize Gore. For everything he brings in the passing game, Singletary has kind of grown into that role. 
And so at the same time, he, he's just kind of a man without a place. But he, the fact that he's still here and that he's still towing the company line means that he they must be finding a way to placate him in the sense that at some point, maybe they realize the way we're utilizing Frank Gore, if we do need to go on a playoff run, how much more can we put on this guy? I mean, he's mm-hmm. 36. All right, well, fair enough. Uh, Yeldon, uh, a, a player who probably should learn how to play special teams, honestly, if he wants to stay additional years in the league at this point, because there's not a whole lot of other reasons why no. with reduced playing time for Buffalo that he would it would be likely that he no, would stay. No, absolutely not. And there again, with the, again, ball security. Some coaches don't care. Some coaches, it drives them crazy. I mean, I don't know if you guys, what was it? Steve Slayton, I believe the wide, the running back's name was. He was very good. For, he, he was very good for Houston for about two years, but he couldn't hang on to the football. And I remember hearing a story that they actually started making him walk around the facility carrying a ball <laughs> at all times. And they encouraged staff members and people who work for the team to try to force it away from him. And if they did, they were to report back to the coach and they were going to make him run laps. And it's like, and sure enough, he washed out of football. So Yeldon, I think ball security, he's got to find a way to work on it. Otherwise, they're not going to let him see the field. And to your point, special teams, if he could do that, he'd be getting playing time. But unfortunately, we are a team or a two running back show over here in a run heavy offense. Very good. All right. Let's flip over to the defensive side because we want to spend some time on that. One thing I always try and get out there to start with are the most common uh, base and pass defense looks. So rundowns, first and ten, what are they most commonly line up? And I know it's personnel driven. You can you can talk about the Ravens in general. Or it's going to be mostly twelve or twenty one they'll face. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what if some thirteen as well? By the way, but uh, but really, yeah, they play a lot of three tight end. Wow, yeah, yeah, that so, makes sense though. That yeah. makes sense. It's a, when I say that it probably happens on, uh, you know, I'd have to look at my offensive score sheets for this, but 15% of plays, but they also, one of the things I'm doing with that is I'm not recording necessarily just the, the, the positional grouping that the defensive coordinator gets to react to, which is all the guys with an eight in their number who come in there, but the, but the, how they line up on the field. And so their tight ends often line up in the backfield or in a diamond formation, other places where they're, they're not used in an, as an inline tight end. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the defensive alignment, one of the things I, we primarily, we play a lot of, you see a lot of nickel defense out of this team. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I, they don't, def- the run has been our Achilles heel all season. And I think part of that comes part of that schematic we very much defer to a nickel formation. I mean, do you think you see some of that when you just look at the team's snap percentages and things mm-hmm. like that? Look you at know, that. Our, <laughs> our, our Sam linebacker is Lorenzo Alexander. He's 37 years old. He's in what is his final season. At the line of scrimmage, he's a good player. He can pass rush a little bit. He's pretty good against the run. He still has, I mean, I think he's still playing some of his better football at an advanced age, which is a kudos to him. But at the same time, he's a massive liability in space. And against a team with a quarterback like Lamar, some of the worst performances that Lorenzo Alexander's had over the years has been when he's played against mobile athletes coming out of the backfield because he simply is too slow to get to the edge anymore. And I think that's what almost dictates them playing more nickel defense is the fact that they don't have a strong Sam linebacker there to kind of come in and help fill when they do go to a three linebacker look. Okay, so they've got they've got Tremaine Edwards and Matt Milano are the two inside linebackers I'm seeing, and they play almost every snap. Matt Milano yes. 
has has only missed about eight snaps per game. So that tells me they're a committed nickel team, meaning on passing downs, they're usually still in the nickel. Four yes. man front, two inside linebackers. Yes. And one of the things that I one of the things that Sean McDermott brought to this team was this idea of the he likes cover three and he he's a Big believer of the big nickel, I guess, is I, if you want mm-hmm. to, the, the nickname that I've heard for it, the buzzword that gets thrown around. So three safeties, two corners, you're playing a safety over the slot. Yes. he And you've seen it over the last few years that with Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott, they've made, a, made it a focal point of our drafting to bring in multiple safeties every single year. We've drafted a new safety. We bring in a free agent safety. And we, I think right now we're still carrying, I know coming into the season we were carrying more safeties than anybody else in the league on the 53-man roster. I think he believes in this idea that as offenses become more innovative, it, you, you, when you put a slot corner out there, no matter how tenacious they are, you're usually talking about someone who's under 180 pounds. And unless you get one of the big, long, but surprisingly fluid athletes, which are kind of rare. So with that said, those guys get bullied in the running game. So if you're going to kind of go to a nickel-heavy defense, you have to have something to beef it up. And I think he relies on that third safety in the slot as kind of protection against that. And so you, I, I have a feeling that despite the – because Lorenzo Alexander is such a liability in space, you're probably going to see a lot of uh, a safety playing what would be a slot or Sam linebacker role. Is that Teron Johnson who comes in to play that role, or does he play in the back end and somebody moves up? Teron Johnson's more of a cornerback. In fact, if anybody, the, the guy that I think you guys would probably see more of would be Saran Neal. Saran Neal has played, when Teron Johnson went down with his injury early on in the season, Saran Neal played most of the snaps that we took out of the nickel as the cornerback. And I th- he played really well, especially against the run in that capacity. He's, he lists as a corner in what I'm looking at, but he's 6.0206. Yeah, he's, he's a strong safety. Okay. They may be basing that off of where just the fact that he played yes, so many snaps I, I in the slot. Yeah, but no, he's he's got the size and that he he fits the mold of a kind of hard hitting strong safety. So it's, and then they've got this veteran Kurt Coleman that they do like to rotate in there in the mix. And so with that three safety look, they can kind of it allows them to do a lot of different things. And I think in their minds they think it'll keep them from being such a liability against the run, but it's still not ideal. I mean, if you were to, get to try to match up with a team that is the tight end talent that you guys do, you would want to know that you had a good, strong side, a strong linebacker that you could put in there. And right now, we don't have it. All right. All right. Very interesting. The Ravens started this year, by the way, with six safeties on the active roster, which is the, a ridiculous number, the most in team history. And they, they nonetheless developed injury problems at the position. So they, they lost three of them. We're down to their last three safeties. For a team that plays a lot of 3-3 dime, oh. uh, that's a real problem. And they also play a lot of 3-4, or used to play a lot of 3-4 quarter, but then they, they didn't really have the p- personnel for that anymore. Uh, they've since re- recovered one of them, and they've, they've converted a corner to safety, so they have more options. But anyway, I just want to bring that up briefly as a, <laughs> as a relative point of comparison in your uh, many safeties uh, uh, comment. Let's let's go through the uh, uh, the defensive line first. Talk about that. Just go through player by player and and who these guys are. So when you go across our defensive line, what you're going to see is kind of a mishmash of. <laughs> so, if you wanted to go from left to right, you've got Jerry Hughes. Jerry Hughes is a he's a veteran pass rusher. 
he's he's older and what you're seeing from him is that he'll bring a lot of pressure but he's not really the guy who finishes plays if anything he's usually the catalyst for a play I think that against some of the NFL's better left tackle talent, which unfortunately for us, you guys happen to have a real good one there in Ronnie Stanley, he tends to fade a little bit. Yeah, you stop noticing him as much in terms of having an impact because very good left tackles can very easily one-on-one with him and win most reps. When you go to the D-tackle group, the D-tackle group is kind of still evolving. You know, at the beginning of the season, we had Harrison Phillips, who was backing up Star Latulule. Star Latulule plays, he's kind of your anchor. I don't want to, you know, he's not a nose tackle, so you can't call him a zero technique, but he's a space eater. He's a guy who, he's, he's not going to give you much in the way of penetration at all. He's not going to pressure you, but what he will do is he's going to occupy blockers and he's going to stop you from being able to push him off the ball. You may have to, he may command double teams in the running game. Next to him is our th- is our would be our three techniques, and that would be Ed Oliver, our rookie, drafted number nine this year, and kind of a, a guy who f- kind of fell into playing here. Uh, I'm Jordan Phillips. Jordan Phillips. I don't know why I can't think of his name. Harrison Phillips. It's the same thing. We call him Phillips and Phillips because there used to be a hardware chain here called <laughs> Phillips and Phillips, and people have made like different graphics with the two of them next to each other behind the old sign. It's kind of funny. But so Phillips has really come on for us. I mean, I think at one point he was leading the NFL in sacks for defensive tackles. He has a real disruptive ability to him. He hand fights really well. It's hard for offensive linemen to get their hands into him because he's got long arms and he does play with a lot of explosion. Ed Oliver is starting to turn some of that on. When we talked to you on your appearance on our show, we talked about you guys lost Matt Skura. And the guy who's replacing him is an undrafted free agent. Um, I, I don't know his exact experience, but one of the things that we took away from the Cowboys game was that when you watched Ed Oliver play against a guy, Connor Williams, who's a former second-round pick just a year ago, very good off- interior lineman, he, he held his own. He didn't look completely overmatched, but he wasn't dominating. And then as soon as he went out and you put in a replacement-level player, in uh, Suofilo, he immediately started to flash disruption and pass rush, and he was he just all of a sudden ate their offensive line alive from the inside. I think at this point in his development, Ed Oliver, he's not perfect, he's small, but he's learning how to use his arms and how to use his speed to convert to power very quickly, and so he can give guys who aren't really adept at anchoring fast, he can give them fits. And then if you go to the defensive end position, you're looking at a rotation of Shaq Lawson, who is literally, I think, the only holdover from the Rex Ryan era still on the roster, (laughs) and uh, kind of a veteran in Trent Murphy. The two of them are interesting just because Trent Murphy, he's kind of gone cold. For the money that we paid him, you you expected to get, when he was healthy, before tearing his ACL, he was a very productive pass rusher, especially when he was just used as a specialist. He came here, and we tried to utilize him as kind of an every-down player, or at least a 50-50 split rotational player. That doesn't seem to be his forte. I mean, he's out there, and he'll hold his own, but again, kind of like Jerry Hughes, you're not going to see a lot of splash plays from him. Whereas Shaq Lawson, over the last month and a half, has been playing some of the best football of his life. He plays with very heavy hands. You know, he's very good at setting the edge against the run. 
And he's now learned how to bully right tackles, and he's developed a really good rip move that I think it's he, he's generating pressures and sacks because of it. All right, fantastic. We're talking to Drew Geyer, by the way. I don't usually put that in the middle of the show, but I want to do that and let people know they can find your material over at Rockpile Report. We'll continue on here with Drew, though. Take us into the second level. You mentioned the two linebackers a little bit earlier, the two inside linebackers. What what a lot of Baltimore's game is predicated on taking advantage of linebackers, perhaps who aren't that good against play action, who don't react well. Uh, also trying to figure out who's not a good and reliable tackler, which Buffalo may have some issues with, uh, in terms of getting space out by, with Lamar's field loosening skills and not taking the read option and uh, and having Lamar pull the ball and try and, and run outside. Well, one of the things that you see when you look at when you look at the makeup of our linebacker core, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We have two linebackers who play almost every single snap. They never come off the field. In fact, Tremaine Edmonds is the only player on the team to have played 100% of mm-hmm. all defensive snaps. He's an integral part of what we do, but he's also a rookie. And I think one of the the draft second book. Year. Second year for Edmonds, right? Now he's a second year player. But when he came into this league as a rookie, the book on him, and you know, obviously draft analysts can be right, they can be wrong. It's all... Some of it's just, I don't want to say it's just you're making conjecture for the sake of it, but Tremaine Edmonds, the thing was he was a freak athlete. Yeah, he was a 4'4 guy at 6'5", 255 pounds, but it was between the ears where he was going to have to do the most development. And you're seeing that he's he's now in year two, he is picking up the nuances of playing middle linebacker. He's He's much farther along on that spectrum than he was previously. But you will see, and you just mentioned the the issues with sure tackling. He is prone to taking bad angles to the ball. That's the one thing, if there's anything you can knock him on, because he he's learned how to drop back in coverage very fluidly, and with his size, it almost lets him cheat a little bit. That he can kind of cheat towards the line of scrimmage, because if he's wrong, he recovers so quickly, and he's got such length, that he's still a good cover linebacker. What happens is is that, especially on misdirection plays in the backfield, your counters or you know, sometimes, again, with, when you're talking about these uh, run-pass option plays or the, what do you want to call them, the read, read option. option, when he sees that, he is prone to taking a bad angle right off the bat, which will often put him, if he makes a tackle on that play, it's miraculous. You saw a couple carries by Ezekiel Elliott last week against Dallas where Ezekiel Elliott's all of a sudden into the secondary and you go back and you watch the replay of the run and you realize that Tremaine Edmonds had a beat on him, but instead of trying to go across behind his defensive lineman's back, he tried to undercut the offensive lineman thinking he could get a tackle for a loss. He's a very aggressive linebacker and in that I think he leaves himself susceptible to making a lot of bad plays that do expose the defenseman behind him. Yeah, so our, our big experience with Tremaine Edmonds in Baltimore, of course, is that he was on the board along with Derwin James at number 16 when the Ravens drafted or had the pull pick to draft in 2018. And by the way, according to some people in Baltimore, you can't say anything wrong about the 2018 draft because the Ravens got Lamar Jackson, but they could have <laughs> had Lamar Jackson no matter what. And they instead uh, dumped or sorry, traded down a couple of times to get Hayden Hurst uh, and Mark Andrews and 
Kenny Young, who they traded. So there's some there there was some it gets complex with all the trades that were made that day. But basically, you can't tell any Ravens fan that they did the wrong thing. But I would have taken Derwin James, and I would have loved to have Tremaine Edmonds too. Either one of them would have been great. And and thinking about having Tremaine Edmonds this year relative to what the the Ravens' weaknesses would have been would have just been a really nice upgrade. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it's he's a linebacker that, again, he's growing into the role. And I think one of the things that you've seen from him over the last few weeks is really the intangible stuff. You know, the team is starting to rally around him. Is I mean, he, He's cut down a lot of his mistakes. I'll say that. He's becoming a much more impactful player. He's leading the team in tackles. He is just he's a reliable guy. He just he's still prone to making mistakes as any second year player would be. I mean, there's a reason that Roquan Smith was the first linebacker off the board in that year. It's because at that point in their development, Roquan Smith was the more complete player. Tremaine Edmonds was the more, he had those freakish athletic qualities that, you know, if you could just mold him, you might have a player with a higher ceiling. And so, again, and that's a, that's a tendency. If you look at the players that we've drafted, Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean have this idea that they can draft freak athletes and they'll teach them how to be football players Mm -hmm. because these guys will have traits that you simply can't teach them. Josh Allen fits that mold. Tremaine Edmonds fits that mold. Devin Singletary fits that mold. He's a small running back with incredible contact balance. You wouldn't think a guy that size could do a lot of the things that he's doing at this level, but he is. And they've kind of brought him along slowly into that. I mean, there's even a a seventh-round draft pick. Usually those picks, I don't want to call them irrelevant because it's kind of insulting. But there's a seventh-round defensive end that we drafted who's playing, Daryl Johnson. Our nickname for him on our show is the Pterodactyl because Mm -hmm. he has a almost a seven-foot wingspan, which is just absurd for a human being. I don't know where he gets his shirts. But when they drafted him, you look at his profile and you see that he's this massive six-foot-six kid. He's raw. But his pure size and his reach makes him, if he could ever use, figure out how to use his hands consistently, he could be a good rotational DN for you. And he's, again, he made the roster, and they've been working through him with that. So that's what you get when you look at this team, is a lot of athletes with freakish athletic uh, traits, they're not quite the most uh, polished in terms of being complete football players. All right. That doesn't mean just they're great combine athletes. They might like other things about them that don't even show up necessarily in the combine stats. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of it's play speed. Play speed is, I think, what they they, they really look at. And that's one of the things with Matt Milano, the linebacker who plays next to Tremaine Edmonds. He is a converted safety coming out of Boston College. And when we drafted him in the fifth round, I regarded it as a throwaway pick. And instead, what they've figured out, he bulked up a little bit. He still runs in the 230 range. But he's so good as a coverage linebacker. And then he's he's kind of become more aggressive in terms of attacking the run. But there again, if you're talking about a team and you're the Ravens who like to lean on that rushing attack, whereas you've got Edmonds who his his Achilles heel seems to be just decision-making, Matt Milano is going to make a really great read 80% of the time. What's going to happen is at 230 pounds, sometimes you're trying to tackle running backs who are just as big and physical as you are. Mm -hmm. So he requires help in order to get those tackles. And so what you see is tackles that are made maybe three or four yards downfield. He gets there, but it's, you know, he's not an at the line of scrimmage impact tackler. Well, you, you, you guys are concerned about a 230 pound inside linebacker 
being too small. And the Ravens started off the season with about a 217 pound Mike linebacker. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. And, you know, he's back playing, playing the will position now where he was, where he was pretty good last year. So uh, that, uh, that hopefully is not a mistake. The Ravens will make again, but, uh, but anyway, t- take us through the secondary. I don't want to take up too much of your time on this. It had a lot of guys who played most of the snaps in the secondary also. Well, and that's it. They they have a kind of a set group that plays. Obviously, Tredavious White. He's one of the better cover corners, young cover corners in football right now. You know, obviously, it's debatable. If you ask any Bills fans, they'll tell you he's the best. He's number one. And if he if he gets snubbed from the Pro Bowl again, everyone's going to riot. That being said, I, he he doesn't force as many turnovers as I think you th- you would think a number one cornerback of that caliber would. But in terms of coverage, he's about as good as you can ask for at this point in the NFL. I mean, he just does a really good job of mirroring receivers. He can stick to you. I think early on in the season, McDermott didn't want to move him around to follow a team's number one wide receiver. But over the last few weeks, as we've played teams that have premier receiving talent, you've kind of seen him start to shadow those guys around the field. And he's done a good job of if not eliminating them, then at least making sure that they're not making any significantly impactful plays. He's very good at that. White came out in a fantastic corner class that included Marlon Humphrey and included Marshawn Lattimore, right? It was in the 2017 group as well. I believe so. Okay. And and they all started off at at a fantastically high level. Humphrey actually trailed them by a little bit. I think he's, he's, He's right there now, but Tredavious White certainly one of the NFL's best corners. I don't think anybody would give you any any trouble about that. Talk about the other corner. Oh, and see, this is where things get dicey. This is where things get dicey. So on the other side, the Buffalo Bills, the starting cornerback is Levi Wallace. And Levi Wallace is an interesting player. He was an undrafted free agent out of Alabama. Yeah, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Alabama cornerbacks with Humphreys and Everett. One of the things that has they've kind of learned about Wallace. He had a really good finish to last year. And I think they came into camp thinking they could just give him the starting job. What they found though, is that as they had to kind of start to, to generate pressure, they had to start disguising their looks and that calls for kind of switching back and forth between man and zone coverage on the outside. What they found is that Wallace is a really great zone cornerback. If you ask him to play man, you are courting disaster. I think they asked him to do it a lot during our game against Miami. And while we ended up winning handily against Miami, he gave up eight catches, an untold number of yards. He he was beaten like a drum pretty soundly throughout the course of that game. And and so you for, looked the at the first Miami game, right? We're talking about Oh no, the most recent one. The, okay. the most the most recent game. And that that kind of continued a trend that was already in the works. So one of the things that the Bills do schematically is they tr- when they blitz, they play man coverage on the outside. Well, what we started to see over the course of the last few weeks and pretty consistently throughout the season, but you're starting to see it more in the fact that they're throwing at him more because they're trying to test him is Kevin Johnson, former first-round draft pick of the Houston Texans. He was one of our first free agent signings of this past offseason. What they've kind of realized is we can't just keep leaving Levi Wallace out here on an island by himself, but we don't want to bench him. So instead, what they've created is this two-man rotation at cornerback two. We don't have a true number two. 
you see this rotation, and whenever you see Kevin Johnson on the field, it's almost a given that there's a blitz coming and that the coverage is going to be manned. Okay, so I was just going to ask you whether this was down-by-down or series-by-series rotation, because the Ravens play a lot of series-by-series rotation, or at least they did last year, but not down-by-down. And I just, aside as an analyst here, I record defensive players by snap. There's nothing more frustrating than a defensive coordinator who wants to change corners by down other than a defensive coordinator who wants to change safeties by down. That's the worst. That's the worst (laughs) human being you can ever face as an analyst because uh, you you have to be recording these things you can't see on the TV sets. You really have to be at the game to record a lot of that stuff or go to the All-22 a couple days later. It's just miserable. But anyway, I I didn't want to interrupt. I no, 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 no. I mean, it's it's hard, and it's it was hard for me to pick up. I mean, I'm a guy who I I attend. I am a Bill season ticket holder, so I spend my Sundays at the game. I usually come back and I watch. You know, once I've had time to calm down, collect myself, <laughs> all the emotion just kind of drain out of the out of the, out of the situation. Then I'll go back and I'll rewatch the TV broadcast. And then I'll usually sit down and watch the truncated version of it one more time as I'm piecing together our show for the week. And then I'll go back and I'll look at the All-22 if I have time, just kind of on a lark, just to see if the things that I really felt in my bones were happening, if there was more context there to be had. So I've spent weeks trying to figure out exactly what it is that's been going on over here. I'm in the number two cornerback position. And you know, I've consulted with other people who also do film analysis, and that's what we've all come up with, is that it, genu- it genuinely just is based on play call. If the play call is a blitz, we're going to blitz a linebacker, we're going to blitz the slot corner, then it's going to be man, and it's more often than not, you're going to look over and see the Kevin Johnson subbed in. That's an interesting thing. That, that uh, I'm sure the advanced scouts have tried to look for things like that. Hopefully they caught that one in terms of figuring out what the, what might be happening. All uh, right. It's, it's definitely it's a good safety group. It's deep. It's we have, and I guess that's the thing it speaks to is that there's depth there. You have enough depth that you have two cornerbacks that you can trust to do a job. I mean, technically, it shouldn't take two guys to do one job, but they figured out a way to use the personnel that they have on hand to get the job done. So it's an interesting group, and I'm interested to see how they try to attack a team like you guys who don't almost don't give us a need for a second cornerback. I mean, there's a part of me that almost wonders if this isn't a game where you see more safety play based on the fact that we have the depth of talent at, you know, we have a Saran Neal who's played a lot of slot over the course of the year. You have a veteran like Kirk Coleman who's adept in that in-the-box strong safety role, but we have two very good starters in Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. I mean, those two guys, if Lamar Jackson wants to throw the football, it's going to be very hard for him to go down the field on these safeties. Micah Hyde is probably the more adept at the two at playing the free safety role, which is why you'll more often than not see him, especially in single high looks, he's always going to be the single high guy. Poyer is very good in that five to you know five to twenty-five yard range from the line of scrimmage. And he's physical. He breaks up a lot of passes. He gets on tight ends as they're trying to break past the linebackers. He does a lot of great things for this defense. And because of what he does so well, Micah Hyde can just kind of float around the back end and look for opportunities to break up passes, commit turnovers, things like that. So very well-defined, free safety, strong safety role, which I love. But the Poyer, one of the things that really sticks out about him is what a great tackler the guy is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 
not a whole lot gets past Jordan Poyer. And that's one of the things that's been a huge boon for the defense, especially as Tremaine Edmonds develops this, <laughs> as they're trying to break him of these habits of missing tackles and you know, taking bad angles, is that you know that there's a level of security. He's a security blanket for our linebacker core because if they miss on something, this still isn't going to be a run to the house because you have a strong safety who takes very good angles. He's very good vision. He's got good short area quickness. And when he tackles and hits a guy, he doesn't miss. And he usually can bring the ball carrier down. Okay. Now they play, they've got two inside linebackers. They play every play. It, uh, yeah, that, that wouldn't make sense then. Those guys are, are presumably going to stay on the field. I was wondering if there's any option for a three-three-five nickel, get extra linemen in the game, but you can't, you're not going to really do that if you have two inside no. linebackers for your play. Schematically, we're kind of, and this is one of the things that I think it shows that this team is still very much a work in progress. When you look at the things that we're doing with our defense, you know, people complain about how, how we've had some very bad games against the run. One of the things that you're going to see is that we don't have an overwhelmingly talented defensive line. Star Latulule, at this point in his career, he's average. He's average at best for what you're asking him to do in terms of being a space eater. Jordan Phillips and Ed Oliver can be disruptive, but we don't, beyond them, we don't. Corey Legit's actually come in and done a nice job as kind of a veteran that you can add into the mix. He doesn't pass rush extremely well he doesn't defend the run extremely well but he's good enough to get you by as a rotational player which is something we do a lot i mean i think if you look at the the snap counts for our defensive tackles you're going to see it's almost 50 percent across the board yeah i understand they do run a very healthy rotation there but there's not a whole lot of talent beyond those guys who are starting so they really can't get creative with how they roll out rolling out extra defensive ends or, you know, some teams have a NASCAR package where you throw out multiple defensive ends on the interior of the line or something like that. We don't have the ability to go to those looks because we just don't have the depth of the talent there. So it almost kind of dictates that we have to play, I don't want to call it a vanilla nickel defense with a little bit of cover three and big nickel mixed in, but that's essentially what you're dealing with there. Okay, very interesting. So, so obviously the big question that comes out of that you're, the defense is typically going to be slower on the field if it's a standard nickel or a big nickel or even a regular nickel most of the time. That's not a, you know, most NFL teams will now go to the dime in obvious passing situations and, and replace one of their linebackers with a with another safety or, or even another corner. But tell me this, what are the Bills done to deal with speed to date and how do you expect them to defense Jackson Brown, Andrews, and the run game? I think there's going to be a lot of uh, burning of sage. There's going to be a lot of prayers. There's going to <laughs> ultimately, if you're talking about how they've dealt with speed, in I've seen you've seen them play games against good running backs and what you might, might even refer to as dominant running backs so far this season. You know, they had they they played against the New York Giants. You, know, you look back and you see that they played against the Tennessee Titans and Derrick Henry. They played against some of the I don't want to say some of the better running backs, but they played Nick Chubb out of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. In those games, when you look at the rushing yards, they still gave up over 100 yards rushing per game. I think the way that they the way that they attempt, I mean, even here with Zeke last week, they finished, the Dallas as a team finished with 103 rushing yards. The way that they deal with these dominant running backs has been to date 
they try to not be as aggressive in the linebacking core. What they almost try to do is have the defensive line hold up your offensive line enough that the rest of the guys can just flow to the ball, minimize the damage it does. The epitome of bend but don't break. At least see if they can get you into a passing down because at that point our pass coverage units are pretty solid and they trust that that will at least force enough punts that our offense can get back on the field and do some damage. Ultimately, if you're talking about dealing with speed, it's going to be hard for this defense because again, you've got two really athletic inside inside linebackers there, but beyond them, there really isn't a whole lot. Teron Johnson isn't a bad cornerback at all. And he does play the run very well. And he's a very athletic cornerback, but he's small and against what the, what I'm assuming is a flotilla of tight ends that are going to be coming at us in this game, I don't know that you can trust. Because again, you guys don't lose play speed because of the playmakers that you're rolling out there, but we almost have to sacrifice that in order to make up for the size disadvantage that having an extra cornerback out there would put on us. Mm-hmm. So, All I mean, right. this is going to be a really... I mean, you want to talk about how we've done it in the past. The way we've done it in the past is a very uh, passive defense. You know, they don't attack the running back in the backfield so much as they just try to attack the line of scrimmage and muddy the water enough so that you guys aren't running down the field on us or having clean lanes to try to break into the secondary against a team like this. I don't know that that approach is going to work just because of the, just the multitude of ways the Ravens run the football. You can't get away with that the way that you could against some of these other more orthodox style teams. Right. All right. Very good. So why don't we open this up for the mailbag at this point and uh, and make sure we get in any questions we've got from folks and then we'll uh, make sure we talk about uh, where they can find your stuff. Josh, how are we doing? All right. Extra long episode today, but it's good because we need this is a big game. We need to make sure we're uh, well informed about it. All right. Uh, again, you can get your questions in on the mailbag using the hashtag film study mailbag over on Twitter. All right. First up. Uh, Greg Roman turned Tyrod Taylor into a pro bowler in Buffalo. Do you see similarities in how he is running the Baltimore offense with Lamar? Well, I very much so. I mean, I think that when you look at what Greg Roman's done as an offensive coordinator throughout his career, I mean, obviously you've heard of, everyone knows this, you know, he had his, he had the success with Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick had his best years under him. Tyrod Taylor had his best seasons under Greg Roman. He's very much using similar concepts with Lamar Jackson. The difference here, though, first of all, Tyrod Taylor is an athlete. You guys saw him. He was a Raven for a while. Yes, he, he, could, he had mobility, but he was nowhere near the dynamic rushing weapon that Lamar Jackson is. And I also think that Lamar Jackson's natural accuracy is a, and willingness to throw the football is so much better than what Tyrod Taylor had. So I, I do, I very much, I see flashes of what I think when Greg Roman was here, they wanted to try to do with Tyrod Taylor. The problem with Taylor was two different things. One, he wasn't as athletic. He couldn't, he wasn't elusive in the field, which is what allows them to get away with a lot of the stuff that they do in that run pass option. The other thing is the way Jackson throws the football when he throws it. Tyrod Taylor's critical flaw was that he he was a what I call a see-it-then-throw-it quarterback. He had to know that a guy was open before he would uncork a pass. Across the board, didn't matter where it was. I think a lot of that came from the fact that he was just very turnover-averse, and our coaching staff tried to coach him to be that. 
under Greg Roman with Lamar Jackson, he's got not only a more accurate passer in those intermediate areas, but Jackson's just a more aggressive passer. Yeah. And so what that's done is that that's given this Roman offense something that I don't think it's had at all, ever. I mean, this is the best iteration of what he's tried to create with three different teams now. And I think a lot of it just revolves around Jackson's makeup as a player. Yeah, I, I completely agree. In fact, thinking back to, to Rod's big year, which I think he had 20 touchdowns and six interceptions in one year for the Bills, it was really a case of he still was was insecure as a passer and he would overthrow a lot of balls thinking, I just want to avoid the interception. What we're noticing from Jackson this year, and particularly in recent weeks, is he is really feeling it, stuffing the ball into windows. And what's showing up on the next-gen stats is that he's got a much higher completion percentage. Not true in the last game in the rain, but it had been true at all for several games previously, much higher completion percentage than his expected completion percentage, which is based on where the defenders are on the field relative to the receiver. So uh, very, very interesting and, and, uh, and big difference there, I think, that you've, uh, you've underscored. All right. Um, the Bills, the only team they've beaten with a winning record is the Titans. How do you defend that it's not just a soft schedule that's getting them to this 9-3 point? <laughs> oh, that's something that's been argued to death on social media to the point where I just I, I had to wave the white flag on it. It's it's some point when you take a look at our schedule and you take a look at the you take a look at the fact that yeah there hasn't been a whole lot of great competition that we've had to go up against. I think that we've done what most decent teams to slightly above average teams should do. When you're faced with that schedule, we won nine games. When Ken appeared on our show this week, I was applauding the fact that the Baltimore Ravens this year have accomplished something incredible in the fact that not only have they gotten to 10 wins, but they've gotten their 10 wins against some of the most dynamic teams in football. So obviously, when you look at that aspect of it, that's to be applauded. With that said, there is a lot of just bad football being played in the NFL. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you look at it right now, there's only 15 to there's 15 teams with sub 500 records, and of those, I think 11 of them have four or fewer wins. Unfortunately, what it's almost like an NBA sort of situation where half of the league is good or at least above average enough that it can cannibalize the other half of the league. And that's what you're seeing play out. The Bills were lucky enough to get a schedule that had a lot of these lackluster teams on that schedule. Starting with the NFC East. Well, exactly. I mean, who saw the NFC East falling off a cliff the way that it did this season? Not a lot of people. You know, when we looked at those games in the preseason, we said, okay, those Cowboys game is going to be tough. The Eagles game is going to be tough. We lost the Eagles game. I mean, we just got ran over in that game. And I think that was kind of an emotional response from the Eagles after just getting thrashed by the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football. But you know, you, when you look around the way our schedule was built, you thought Cleveland was going to be better. You know, Obviously, what you see is teams with, that had high expectations that just didn't perform up to them. You knew Miami was going to be bad, but you thought the Jets were going to be competitive. We beat the Jets, yeah. and then they've gone on to have an abysmal year. Yeah, you look at teams, the Patriots, obviously the Patriots are still good, but you figured the Tennessee Titans would be about what they are. Kind of a middle-in-the-pack team trying to fight their way out of that. The Eagles are who you thought they would be. The Dallas Cowboys have been disappointing. 
So yeah, it's we're beating the teams that are on our schedule, but unfortunately, there's just a lot of bad football being played in the NFL right now. I, I think it's very excusable, Drew. Around the league, the Ravens for many years had big, gaudy records. Gaudy, you know, they had 10, 11, 12 win years where they beat a lot of teams that were second division teams, if you want to call them in the, using old baseball terminology. But the nature of the thing is, if you win 11, 12 games and you're going to face a lot of teams who aren't as good for a lot of reasons. One is you beat them if they're in your own division. And and second of all, you've already taken, you know, a, a plus six out of the league if you're 11 and five and the rest of the league's just not that good. Plus, good teams will more often beat the bad teams, surprise, surprise, than they'll beat other good teams. So, uh, you know, it's not surprising. It really isn't. I mean, the Ravens are having a, kind of a historic year in, in, the, in their ability to beat good teams and beat good teams very badly this year. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not an unusual team. And I wouldn't point to any team and say, oh, they just don't have any marquee wins and boo-hoo. Uh, well, so, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't feel good about this. My father called me tonight and he asked me, he's like, what's going to happen at the stadium on Sunday? I told him I'm going to spend half of it watching it through my fingers like a horror movie. That's what's going to happen here. And it's going to be a long, long day. Win or lose, it's going to be tough. And there's a, this is kind of the widowmaker period of the season for the Buffalo Bills because you have nine wins. But you're, you have a nine, I think right now their playoff odds are 95%. But as a Bills fan, no lead ever feels like it's safe. Nothing ever feels like it's guaranteed because we've watched them disappoint us in so many just ways that you you couldn't write it. If you were a film writer, you couldn't come up with this stuff. And so now we're faced with three straight games against teams with winning records. And it's really this is the litmus test to find out if this 2019 Bills team really is who we think they are. And that doesn't mean that they have to go out and win these games, but it's how they play in them. Because if they lose all of them, they're probably at, they're going to miss the playoffs. There's a healthy no, chance. No, they'll probably still happen. make it. <laughs> There's a healthy chance. I, like I said, I, I just look at it as if you lose out at this point, you're 9-7. and seven, At that point... Oh, if they lose all four. Now, you're, you're having them lose against the Jets. I thought you meant the three games. I still say they're an odds-on favorite to make the playoffs even if they lose the next three and are 9-6. and six. See, I'd take that. I, I did, you know, thank you. You're trying to make, I, I, I appreciate you trying to make me feel better. I, it just as an anxious fan. It's probably not going to work, but I look at these games now. And what I say about Baltimore is I look at this and I say, you're essentially taking on the de facto best team in the NFL. And I think you can qualify that by looking at their recent wins. The fact that you guys won in the rain against a very good San Francisco team. You beat the Patriots. You beat the Seahawks. You beat the teams that seem to beat everybody else. So now here's the Bills facing the top of the mountain. If you go out there and you have a good game and you don't lose in such a way that you carry a hangover into this primetime game with Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. I almost consider that in and of itself a win. The Pittsburgh game is a big one. It's a, it's a, it's certainly a very winnable game for Buffalo. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, I, I'm, I, if, if, if the bills beat the Ravens on Sunday and it's, it's definitely possible if the bills beat the Ravens on Sunday, the narrative will completely change for Buffalo fans too. Let's go for the number one seed right now. This is, this is, uh, you know, we've, we've got, a team. We, <laughs> we've, we've beaten, we've beaten the King. Now the you know, we've got Pittsburgh. We better not look past them to the Patriots, but take them one game at a time and to get the number one seed. Well, if that's going to happen, who's one player on your t- like, like if, if we're going to beat you guys 
Who who's going to who's going to beat us? Other yeah. one player on team that'll beat us. Who, 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 I, I'm a Lamar, Lamar Jackson's got to struggle. I was going to say, is guy. that it? Is he the only guy? Because that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking the only thing that we can do is if we can slow down Lamar Jackson and just make him a passer more often than a runner, we at least give ourselves a puncher's chance. When I'm looking at our team versus your team, I go back to that San Francisco game and I look at the numbers and I see that Raheem Mostert, he had a game against your linebacking course specifically. Um, you know, when you looked at the advanced numbers, his yards before contact were up around, f- I think, four, five, six. Yeah, he, he wasn't touched on the way to the edge. It's, it was an edge defender issue, and we talked a little bit about this when I was on your show. They really fixed that problem with about 25 minutes to go in the game and didn't allow any runs after that. So I'm not saying that, that the situation is, is fixed for all time, but I will say the Ravens are very cognizant of the problem. And Jalen Ferguson, who's been a good, had a good rookie year, uh, you know, they're going to reduce what he does, I think, in the upcoming weeks because of what happened and made it so easy for Mostert. Beyond that, the San Francisco 49ers play very heavy across the board. And having Juszczyk and Kittle are more than, I think, what Buffalo presents. Oh, in terms absolutely. Of, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But so in terms of the player that I think, if there's anybody who's going to have the biggest impact against the Ravens, I mean, obviously, our quarterbacks, I, I almost feel like that's a cop-out, but the, I take them out of the equation. I think it's going to be Devin Singletary. If there's someone that the Baltimore Ravens have to worry about on this Bills offense, it's allowing Devin Singletary to do some of the things that Mostert did, which is get into space, because Singletary's shifty, and he's not a, again, he's not a 4-4 guy. He's not going to burn the entire field. But what he's going to do is you're going to try to tackle him and you're going to find out that you just can't seem to get your hands on him because when you hit him, he doesn't go down. He's got incredible contact balance because he's 5'8 and a half, 5'9", but he's 205 pounds. Hmm. He's, a, he's a tiny little cannonball. And when he gets out into space, he can really make some chunk plays that bring a lot of balance to the offense. All right. All now, right. Very good. Let's, I wanted to close out the mailbag with uh... – this question about Josh Allen, because last year the Ravens and Bills started kicked off the season together with Flacco and Peterman uh, as the quarterbacks, and little did we know that the best quarterbacks coming out of the draft class were sitting on the bench that game. And for Baltimore, this is now Lamar's town, and it's a completely different attitude for, for Raven fans than a year ago. Uh, how has Buffalo fans reacted to Josh Allen? Are they all behind him? Is it? Are they attributing it to that we're winning even with Josh Allen? How are they? How are they hand on him? <laughs> so we do a post game press conference series where I, it's kind of tongue in cheek. We actually have a podium and a professional backdrop, and I get up there and I vent my frustrations in much the format that you would get from a professional head coach, except I answer questions and respond to things the way coaches never would. And at one point this season, and it, it was funny enough, it came after a win against the Tennessee Titans. I was shirtless at the podium, just, <laughs> just beside myself over the fact that Josh Allen was not going to be good enough. And I care. I think a lot of people had that fear. You know, you watched him play early on in the season, and a lot of it was a byproduct of what they were trying to force him to do: stay in the pocket, don't use your legs. And what you also saw was kind of this deterioration of his deep ball. That was something that he made a lot of highlight reel plays in 2018. That for the first 
I want to say four, five, six, seven weeks of the season, he couldn't connect on a pass of more than 30 yards to save his life. Then what they did, and I think it's Josh Allen, at that point, everyone was so down on him. And then the offensive coordinator finally took the handcuffs off at the directive of our head coach. I mean, his quote was, we're going to play fearless. But behind closed doors, there was a directive given that you guys have got to find a way to be more aggressive on offense. you got to stop limiting what Josh is doing, and you got to put him with personnel packages that are going to accentuate the things he does well. What you saw was a shift from our offensive coordinator to this 11 personnel package. And with that, they were allowed to run a lot more no huddle, which almost saves Josh Allen from himself because now he doesn't have to think. That's when Josh Allen, sometimes at his worst, is when you give him too much time to huddle up, to talk to players, to really kind of think about the moment. Instead, you let him just go out there and be a quarterback and let him get into a natural rhythm. As soon as they made that change, you saw these dominant performances from him. And he has yet to have a 300-yard game, but he's had just a night and day change in his command of the offense. And since that point, people have really rallied behind him, myself included. You know, when you watch that Dallas game and you see that he goes back and forth, it's a seesaw game at the beginning, it's seven to seven. And then he makes this ridiculous play that's going to be a part of every Thanksgiving highlight reel for the rest of time, I think. This botched snap that somehow he then picks up and runs headfirst through five defenders for a first down. From that moment forward, out of 20 times, out of his 20 snaps when he had the ball in his hands, he scored a rushing touchdown, he threw two incompletions, and he was sacked once. He dominated the game from that point forward. It was like the light bulb went on. And when he's that quarterback, there's no telling what he's capable of. And the people just rally around that. I mean, I think that the last few weeks have done a lot to ease a lot of fans' fears about what he might be as a quarterback, much in the same way this the start to this season, I'm sure, has chased away a lot of the ghosts of what came around in the kind of unceremonious fashion Baltimore exited the playoffs last year. I mean, is that a yeah. fair comparison? Yeah, that's it's, it's fair. The, the, the win at Miami was a historic performance for Jackson and certainly I think got rid of a lot of the questions there was there were all it was all kinds of talk he barely played in the preseason like all starting quarterbacks he was outstanding in camp but hey that's seven on seven it's 11 on 11 where you can't hit him all those things and then Minka Fitzpatrick the greatest trade property in the entire NFL had one of the worst games ever by a cornerback in literally in league history versus <laughs> Jackson he allowed three touchdowns to, to, to Jackson on, on players that he was assigned to cover, and he had penalties on both of the other touchdown passes. So the optionality to get out of that. So anyway, he, uh, it took him a week to recover his trade value before Pittsburgh snatched him up. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, to answer your so, – so I guess to kind of wrap your question there, fans here have embraced Josh Allen finally as the – because they're finally seeing all of the things that our coaching staff and that our GM drafted him to be. You're finally starting to see the big arm because he's becoming more accurate. You know, he's completing so many more of his passes in that zero to 20 range, how we started the show talking about his struggles in 2018. He's improved tangibly in every single one of his previous deficiencies. And when you see that from a player, you can't not, you can tell the efforts there. And now you're finally seeing it pay off. People are starting to rally around the idea that this might be our guy. Well, that's great. Drew, 
Great episode. We really appreciate this. Our, our fans, I know, are really going to love this in terms of hearing about the Buffalo Bills and learning about them. And I think they've got just time to listen to this entire episode before kickoff if we get it out there immediately. So anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll cut it off there. But uh, tell us now, where can folks go to find your work? So we're, we're, we're launched on Podbean, but pretty much you know, Apple iTunes, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, any one of your podcatching apps. You can go find the Rockpile Report podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Rockpile Report, and we have a YouTube channel under Rockpile Report. Okay. And do you, do you guys do any writing, any articles, or is it all podcasting and videos? It's all, it's all podcasting and videos. Um, I went to school for journalism, and my passion for writing died the day I realized I couldn't make any money at it. So, <laughs> so now I work in finance, and I kind of gave that up. Very good. Same same kind of background here. Appreciate it. And uh, uh, Josh, anything else we need to talk about? Uh, yeah, just people need to continue to check out filmstudybaltimore.com for all the articles up there. And then check out the Film Study Shorts that will come out on Friday and Monday because we're mixing it up and trying a little something different this week. Well, we'll do that. People also get in your ideas for film study shorts. We had another couple good ones today I really want to do. Uh, but also uh, give Purple Flock a chance. Go over to the forums there where, where we have a link in with them, and you can talk about the film study pieces over there uh, and get some good discussion going with a very interested group of uh, football fans. Right. At the bottom of every article, you can click to continue the conversation, and it'll take you right on over to the message board. <laughs> builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America and the more you do with 5G the more building it right matters the more your network matters the more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters it's us pushing us it's Verizon versus Verizon 5G built right from America's most reliable network most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 US report of three mobile networks results may vary award is not an endorsement whether you're buying a new car or used one, it's a big investment, which is why you should choose Pennzoil Platinum. It helps extend the life of your engine and protect it up to 15 years or 500,000 miles, whichever comes first, guaranteed. That's because Pennzoil's base oil is made from natural gas and 99.5% free from engine clogging impurities. The proof is in the Pennzoil. Enrollment required? Keep your receipts. Other conditions apply? See Pennzoil.com warranty for full details. Find it at Firestone Complete Auto Care. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.